1: or text WONDERYPOD to 500-500.
2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, President Biden takes office and is immediately faced with overwhelming challenges. His first priority, COVID-19. America came together last Wednesday to honor its 46th president in somewhat subdued and heavily fortified inauguration festivities. The day coincidentally marked the one year anniversary of the first coronavirus diagnosis in the U.S. There were some bursts of color in the much smaller and mostly masked ceremonies. Some old traditions were reimagined due to the pandemic. Memorable moments have gone viral, but in the chilly Washington setting, the sense of history in the making was powerful. President Biden wasted no time addressing the Herculean challenges ahead.
1: 400,000 Americans have died. That's more than have died in all of World War II. 400,000, this is a wartime undertaking.
2: Our last president also waged war on the coronavirus but the new administration says its war effort will be different. There are new guidelines on mandatory mask wearing, lower vaccination goals, and a promise to revamp a confusing and chaotic vaccine rollout.
3: Please wear a mask.
2: We'll talk to the president's top medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Plus we'll take a stunning look back at the dysfunctional handling of the pandemic during the Trump administration. With a key figure in that effort, Dr. Deborah Birx. Do you think President Trump appreciated the gravity of the health crisis you were describing? I think the
4: president appreciated the gravity in March. But where's the vice president in all of this? The vice president knew what I was doing. You mean
2: he knew that you were telling the governors privately to do things that the president publicly was making light of? He knew what I was doing. Doctors Fauci and Burks, they're just ahead on Face the Nation. welcome to Face the Nation. The country has a new administration, but we're still facing a crisis of monumental proportions. Nearly 25 million Americans have been diagnosed with coronavirus so far. Right now, the rate of new infections is starting to slow, but the death toll is not. Last week, an American died of COVID-19 every 30 seconds. And experts are now warning that in addition to being more contagious, the new variants could also be more lethal. We begin with the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Good morning to you, doctor. Good to have you back.
3: Good morning, Margaret. Good to be with you.
2: Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, said Friday the B B111 strain that was first detected in the U.K. may be associated with a higher degree of mortality. The day prior, you said it did not. So which is it? Is it more deadly?
3: Well, The data that came out was after they had been saying all along that it did not appear to be more deadly. So that's where we got that information. But when the British investigators looked more closely at the death rate of a certain age group, they found that it was one to per thousand, we'll say, and then it went up to 1.3 per thousand in a certain group. So that's a significant increase. So the most recent data is in accord with what the Brits are saying. We want to look at the data ourselves, but we have every reason to believe them. They're a very competent group. So we need to assume now that what has been circulating dominantly in the UK does have a certain degree of increase in what we call virulence, namely the power of the virus to cause more damage, including death.
2: And that is projected to be the dominant strain here in the U.S. by March, according to the CDC. Your organization, the NIH, has just started testing to see if the existing vaccines prevent infection from some of these variants. What do we know about whether the vaccine works against B117 or B1351, which is coming out of South Africa?
3: Well, there are actually two different ones. When you look at the effect, of the change this lineage that is the uk lineage that is now in at least 20 states in the united states the vaccine induced antibodies namely the vaccines that some of us have gotten and that we're rolling out moderna and pfizer vaccines seem to continue to be protective against the mutant strain it is a very minor diminution but the cushion that you have of efficacy is so large that it's not going to negatively impact. A little bit more concerning with the South African isolate, namely the mutant that is now prevalent in South Africa, particularly its negative impact on some of the monoclonal antibodies that have been given for treatment that it can, in some respects, knocks out their efficacy. It looks like it does diminish more so the efficacy of the vaccine, but we're still within that cushion level of the vaccines being efficacious against these mutants. Having said that, Margaret, we we'll look at this and follow this very, very carefully because these things do evolve. Mm-hmm. And what we will do and are doing already is making preparations for the possibility that down the pike, down the line, we may need to modify and upgrade the vaccines. We don't need to do that right now. The best way to prevent the further evolution of these mutants is to vaccinate as many people as possible with the vaccines that we have currently available to us. That's the best protection against this evolution.
2: I want to get to that in a second. But just to clarify, um, the Biden administration says in its new plan, it wants to increase surveillance and sequencing of viruses, basically do more research to figure out what's actually swirling around in the population. Do we know for a fact that the South African strain, B1351, is not in the United States right
3: now? I can't say definitively, Margaret, that we know as a fact. What has been looked at thus far, it has not come up on any of the surveillance, but we need to expand greatly our genomic surveillance. Yeah. We know that. It had not been at the level that we would have liked, but there's a lot of movement right now at the CDC level including some input from the NIH and other organizations to dramatically increase the what we call genomic surveillance. Mm
2: -hmm. So we just don't, we don't know yet Um, on the vaccines. It is
3: unlikely, but we can say definitively. Understood.
2: On the vaccines, you just drove home that point of how important it is to get this out there. I want to play some tape here for you and and get you to clarify when U.S. taxpayers can expect to get their vaccine.
1: At least 100 million COVID vaccine shots into the arms of the American people in the first 100 days. 100 million shots in the first 100 days. You
3: know the goal that's been set, which I believe is entirely achievable, is to have 100 million people vaccinated in the first 100 days. Both vaccines? Primary and boost, yes. Primary and And boost, boost. in 100 days? Yes, yes.
2: So, Doctor, in that exchange, you seem to be promising a bit more than the president is. Can you just bottom line it? How many people will be fully vaccinated within 100 days?
3: Yeah, so, so let me clarify that because there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. Um, what we're talking about is 100 million shots in individuals. So a shots, as in other words, when you get down to, let's say, a certain part of the 100 days, at the end of 100 days, you're going to have some people who will have gotten both shots and some will still be on their first shots. What the president is saying, 100 million shots in the arms of people within 100 days.
2: So reportedly the transition team projections are that that's more like 67 million people by April, by the end of 100 days. Is that an accurate number?
3: Right. Yeah, that is. Well, I I haven't done the math myself, but it sounds very much like the accurate number where you're having people who will have gotten two doses and then some that are still on their first dose. When you add them all up and you look at shots, it's 100 million shots in the arms of people within the first 100 days.
2: Okay. so the Trump administration's Health and Human Services secretary said on this program in December that just with Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine, they could get to 100 million shots by the end of February. President Biden's goal puts that benchmark out in April. Are you deliberately setting expectations low?
3: No, no, that's not the case. If you go back and look at the facts of actually what had been done in the first like 38 days, I believe that in the former administration, I think maybe two out of those days had reached 100 million. And the average along that period of time was about 450,000 per day. This is hard. Now, what we've got to realize that although more recently, there have been a couple of days where you've had a million, that has been predominantly mm-hmm. in areas that are relatively easy from the standpoint of getting that done in a nursing home or in a situation in a hospital setting. If you look forward with the challenges that we'll be having, getting it out into the community that is not easily accessible, getting it to people that are not uniform in the sense Mm -hmm. of being healthcare providers or people in nursing homes. I still think that that challenge is really, uh, first of all, it's gonna be a floor, not a a, a ceiling. It's, It's not gonna be easy to do that. I think there is this misperception out there, Margaret, because we've hit one million a day for a couple of days that when we get out into the community it's going to be really easy to do that that's not the case it is going Mm -hmm. to be a challenge i think it was a reasonable goal that was set we always want to do better than the goal you've set but it is really a floor and not a ceiling the most important thing the message that gets lost in this back and forth margaret is that we've got to vaccinate as many people as we possibly can as quickly as we possibly can. Absolutely. And that's what President Biden made as the point. I mean, that was the I major won't... point that he was making.
2: Uh, uh, understood, and, and we just want to help clarify that. I, I want to ask you, as you know, we spoke to your former colleague, Dr. Burks, uh, on Friday for this program. She laid out problems that, yes, were attached to President Trump, but go far beyond that, deep problems within the healthcare infrastructure of this country that will contribute to continued problems. Do you think there needs to be a 9-11 type commission to look at what went wrong?
3: Well, I'm not, you know, Margaret, it's not up to me to say that I think we really do. I mean, whether you want to call it a 9-11 commission, but we really need to look into some of the deficiencies in our healthcare systems at the local level. One of the things that I think, I believe I had mentioned to you in a previous appearance here, Margaret, Mm -hmm. that I felt we should do much better is a greater collaboration and coordination between the federal government and the local, the state. We've got to do that in a coordinated way instead of just telling the states, you're on your own, do it on your own. That clearly does not work very well.
2: Dr. Fauci? Thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you again. Up next, a candid interview with the former coordinator of President Trump's Coronavirus Task Force.
0: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
5: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in
3: minutes. Talk about starting the morning right.
5: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
2: Dr. Deborah Burks, the former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, is now at the CDC as a special advisor to the Center for Global Health. We sat down with her Friday. She had wanted to wait until after President Biden had taken office to talk about her time in the Trump administration. The Biden coronavirus czar, uh, for lack of a better term, told reporters, when it comes to the vaccine, what we're inheriting is so much worse than we could have imagined. Is that a political statement? Is that accurate?
4: You know, I've been trying to process all the last 11 months um, because— It's really important that we understand what worked and what didn't work. I took extensive notes during the entire process, because I didn't want to lose track of what we need to do to make our response better in the future. One of those critical areas is this idea of federalism on which the United States was built. But that can be taken to extremes. Um, And so the mantra always was federally supported, and state manage, locally executed. That was the Trump plan. That was the mantra. But what does support mean? And what does federal support mean? And I think really an understanding of what states need to translate guidance into implementation, what state needs, states need in interpreting data together. Um, they only are seeing their data, but it's really important that they understand what's happening in their entire region because people have been mobile. Do
2: you think it's just bad architecture being handed off to the Biden administration? Are they being set up for failure?
4: Oh, I don't believe—and I—, I w- if I thought that was true, I wouldn't be sleeping right now, <laughs> because what was very important to me is, from even before the election, is to make sure that people had access to data um, and the data that we were seeing. And I think the more people can understand where the virus is, where it's increasing, where it's decreasing, and react to even the slightest uptick—and that's a place where we're still slow. Surveillance. We're still slow in reaction. You need to react Act, when you first see that tiniest little uptick in test positivity. That's the moment to tell that population, we need you to do these things. You were often at odds
2: with the CDC, is what I've been told. Is that true?
4: I know the CDC well, so it was—let it was, me just be very clear. It was more difficult for them because I knew where the gaps were. And so when I came in, I really asked for those gaps to be addressed. I was also very pushy, and the one thing that's been taken completely out of context is when I was talking about not trusting the CDC data, it had to do with the ethnicity and race of the fatalities early on because of the delay in that reporting. Our delay for death certificates that have all that information on can be up to 30 days. So, we're at the end
2: of February. CDC official gives a briefing to reporters that tanks the markets when she says that within the community there may be a virus spreading and it could cause severe disruption to daily life. Dr. Fauci goes on television a few days later and says the risk to Americans remains low. You're watching this, and what are you thinking?
4: So, I'm in South Africa. We're yelling at the CNN (laughs) television, saying, this is going to be a pandemic. Because the Chinese, what I saw from China, when you overwhelm your hospitals, you have to know that you have broad-based community spread before that happens, yet they weren't seeing it. And that really worried me because what we were looking for is people with symptoms. And so when people were coming into the country, we were looking for people with symptoms.
2: But why wasn't it obvious to them, when you're watching this on TV and saying, this is so clearly a pandemic that's coming to hit us hard?
4: I've learned from the things we've missed. This is exactly how we missed the HIV pandemic. If you're only looking for sick people, you miss a lot of the, what is really happening under the surface. And so I was always worried that there was a big iceberg under the surface, and we were just seeing the top of it. So when we were questioning people who came into this country about symptoms, rather than testing everybody who came into the country, that's when I started to get really worried. Um, at the same time, there was a single individual in the White House that had been calling me since January, that was Matt Pottinger.
2: <laughs> yes.
4: The deputy in national security advisor. Because I've, I've known him, I've known his wife for a very long time. We've worked on pandemics together. Both of us were in Asia during SARS. And so we understood how serious this can go. Matt
2: Pottinger asks you to come from the State Department to the White House. And I said no about 20
4: times. Why? <laughs> well, from the outside. Everything looks very chaotic in the White House. Um, I had spent the first three years of this administration trying to stay out of the swirl, uh, trying to protect the PEPFAR program. We had extraordinary cuts, obviously, every year. This is Um, AIDS. the the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. It's what's changed the trajectory of the pandemic around the world, both for HIV and TB. I had no interest in going into a political space. I'm not a political person. I'm a civil servant. It never occurred to me to go into the White House until I could see that we were missing pieces that I thought were very important in the response. And so after many weeks of saying no, 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 Um, The president announced the new task force with the vice president in the lead. Um, They said this would be very technical, (laughs) and that I would have a very technical position. And because I thought that I could be helpful, which is the only reason I go and do anything, if I think I have something to add, I feel like it's my obligation to the American public to go in and do that. That's what a civil servant is supposed to do.
2: You were a colonel in the Army? Yes. An immunologist, you were appointed by President Obama to work on AIDS relief, as you mentioned, at the State Department, yet your name in the history books is going to be associated with President Donald Trump. How does that sit with you?
4: Well, you know, this is what worries me. If we start looking at technical civil servants as belonging to a political party, we will lose the ability for highly qualified civil servants to come and help. If we start saying, if you come in and do this, you are then going to be part of the political apparatus, that is going to be very dangerous for this country.
2: Do you feel like your work is misunderstood as political?
4: I think pandemics are always political. Um, That's why, I mean, I've worked in, in, you know, 60 countries. Um, Every pandemic is political because you have to make policy changes to confront them and policies are often political.
2: You worked on AIDS, which is a highly politicized virus in sub-Saharan Africa, but did any of that prepare you for the politics you encountered here with this pandemic in this White House? No, no.
4: White Houses function in a purity, a pretty bureaucratic way. Um, And most of the agencies function in a very predictable and bureaucratic way. But when you remove the infrastructure of the civil servants, then you end up with a lot more very quick right turns, left turns, right turns, left turns. And then that becomes less predictable and less able to manage that kind of response and change. And so that's why I kept extensive notes from every meeting, um, daily reflections to really understand what I was seeing. I wrote a daily report, over 310 of them, that went to senior leaders. We created... Did President uh, Trump read them? I don't know. I don't know. I sent them up through to the vice president. Um, I had very you did little read exposure. read President Trump. I had very little exposure to President Trump.
2: Do you think President Trump appreciated the gravity of the health crisis you were describing?
4: I think the president appreciated the gravity in March. Um, It took a while after I arrived in the White House to remove all of the ancillary data that was coming in. I mean, there was parallel data streams coming into the White House that were not transparently utilized. And I needed to stop that, where people were. You mean outside advisors? Outside advisors, coming to inside advisors. And to this day, I mean, until the day I left, I am po- I'm convinced there were parallel data streams because I. Disinformation. I saw the president presenting graphs that I never made. So I know that someone, or someone out there or someone inside was creating a parallel set of data and graphics that were shown to the president. I know what I sent up, and I know that what was in his hands was different from that. You can't do that. You have to use the entire Who was database. Doing that? To this day, I don't know. I know now, watching some of the tapes, that certainly Scott Atlas. Brought in parallel data streams. So the chief of staff is not saying, wait a second, this is our official
2: coordinator. Listen to her and her only. Listen to you?
4: No one was saying that. No one said that to me. To the president? I I don't know if they were saying it to the president. Do you think the president was just distracted by the
2: political implications in the campaign?
4: You know, I always wonder that. And I mean, the worst. Possible time you can have a pandemic is in a presidential election year. I think the White House personnel were very focused on this pandemic in March and April. I think once the country began to open, and it was clear to me that they weren't going to follow my really gating criteria that I had worked hard on. How to I, open restaurants? How to let people? I, I dine combined indoors. all of that together um, for these great gating criteria. So. In calculating everything with the slow reopening, I didn't think anyone could get to phase three until August. And you can see in the states that followed either that criteria or similar criteria, that's how long it took them. Were there COVID deniers in the White House? There are people in the White House, and I think people around this country, because I've had the privilege to meet them and listen to them and hear them, because I wanted to hear what people were saying. There were people who definitely believed that this was a hoax. Why? I think because the information was confusing at the beginning. I think because we didn't talk about the spectrum of disease, because everyone interpreted on what they knew. And so they saw people get COVID and be fine.
2: So you don't blame the president's own language of calling some of this politically motivated a hoax. It was a phrase he used at one point.
4: When you have a pandemic where you're relying on every American to change their behavior, communication is absolutely key. Mm. And so every time a statement was made by a political leader that wasn't consistent with public health needs, that derailed our response. Um, It is also why I went out on the road because I wasn't censored on the road.
2: You felt the White House was censoring you?
4: Well, if you've noticed, (laughs) I was not able to do national press. Um, The other thing that was very important to me is I was not going to go outside of the chain of command. And so if our White House comms group did not put me out, I didn't ask to go out. Because there was so much leaking and so many parallel stories being leaked to the press that did not have grounding in truth that I didn't want to ever be part of that slippery slope. I know people started it with good intentions of trying to form the American people, but then it became a way that they could silence those who didn't agree with them. And so I knew that every time I had a significant disagreement in the White House that within days a story would be planted.
2: Who was doing that?
4: I think a lot of people were doing that.
2: Do you think the administration was suppressing vital information to win the election?
4: I don't know what their motivation was. I know that... I was so frustrated that I realized that the only way, if I could not get a voice internally, that I could get a voice out at the state level. Because I could see the governors on the governor's call weekly, and I could see how deeply they were concerned about every one of their citizens. Most of them were not in the middle of an election campaign. I want to make it clear, this was just not Debbie Birx. There was a coalition of, of four of us at the beginning, from Steve Hahn to Bob Redfield to myself to Tony Fauci, we would make sure that we could get the information out to the public in one way or the other. It's why I sent the information to all of them every morning, Mm -hmm. because I never knew who would have the ability to do press. Did you ever consider quitting? Always. I mean, why would you want to put yourself through that um, every day? Um, Colleagues of mine that I'd known for decades, decades, in that one experience, because I was in the White House, decided that I had become this political person, even though they had known me forever. I, I had to ask myself every morning, is there something that I think I can do that would be helpful in responding to this pandemic. And it's something I asked myself every night. And when it became a point where I I wasn't getting anywhere, and that was, like, right before the election, I wrote a very detailed communication plan of what needed to happen the day after the election um, and how that needed to be executed. And there was a lot of promise that that would happen.
2: Because you knew at that point that the election was a factor in communication about the virus. Yes. Yes. Did you ever withhold information yourself? No. Some people felt you became an apologist for President Trump. They look at that moment in the briefing room.
1: Then I see the disinfectant,
3: where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, by injection inside, or or almost a cleaning.
2: You were sitting there, and he looked at you, and he asked about ultraviolet light and heat. See, and that, you, and you start talking about fevers. You no, didn't see, say no. See, this is no.
4: the
3: no. Deborah, have you ever heard of that? Uh, the uh, heat and the light relative to certain viruses, yes, but relative to this virus,
4: that is a treatment. He was not speaking to me he was speaking to the dhs scientist that was two seats over from me
0: mm-hmm.
4: that entire time when he finally turned to me and said is it a tr- could this be a treatment i said not a treatment you can look at the transcripts not a treatment but that moment was co- that was completely lost and then there's You know skits on Saturday Night Live. We all mess up sometimes. You threw the ball wrong. I didn't say don't drink the bleach. (laughs)
2: It happens.
4: When you're a scientist who's grounded themselves in data and combating epidemics and working with communities and working with governments to change the future of people's lives for the better, and then you get this is what when you talked about was i prepared for that no i wasn't prepared for that i didn't even know what to do in that
2: moment sometimes people say well tony fauci when that happened he to him he would sort of gently come back up to the podium and set the record straight
4: well he was given the opportunity to do that and you though. don't felt
2: you don't feel you were given the opportunity to respond. not until
4: he turned to me and said could this be a treatment and i said not a treatment you know people then wanted to find you by the moment. And mm-hmm. I understand, I under, look, I understand how perceptions go. I understood that to go into the White House and try to support a comprehensive coronavirus response by utilizing the strength of the federal government would be a terminal event for my federal career which is part of the reason why I didn't want to do it. A terminal event. (laughs) A terminal event. I know that I wouldn't be allowed to really continue successfully within the federal government. You can't go into something that's that polarized and not believe that you won't be tainted by that experience or how people interpret you in that experience. So I knew that part of it. Um, I didn't want that to happen.
2: And this will be the end of your federal career.
4: Yeah, I will um, need to retire probably within the next four to six weeks from CDC.
2: And how have you made peace with that, that this pandemic, that you're leaving in the midst of this, that you will be associated with it?
4: What was reassuring to me all along is Mm -hmm. I knew this would be studied. I knew that the emails, the reports that I wrote, the request to expand testing, the how to, improve therapeutics, all of that, um, all of that would eventually come to light. Um, Maybe not in my lifetime.
2: You feel you'll be vindicated?
4: I'm not looking to be vindicated. In that moment, I think my service was important. Um, I think it was important to make progress in testing. I think it was important in making progress with some of the therapeutics. And I think it was important to really, um, we had great innovation in vaccines. I was focused solely on the mission. And the mission was to try to save as many American lives during this pandemic as possible. And so I couldn't get distracted on vindicating myself or getting the information or telling the, you know, coming back to the press and saying, that's not what happened, that would waste my energy in that moment of staying focused completely on that data Mm -hmm. and ensuring that I was seeing everything that was going on.
2: I read a Washington Post profile of you and it said, when she's working on a vital public health issue, Burks will do whatever is necessary as long as she thinks she can make a
4: difference true and it hurt my family you know all of this I have two daughters in their 30s who had to live through this and watch their mother these things said about their mother to become a skit I mean I have two grandchildren daughters you know I think I felt the whole time that I also had to be serious, to be taken seriously. And I couldn't ever let emotion come into this. That no matter how frustrated I got, no matter how beaten down I got, I had to keep pushing as hard as I could. This tested my resilience. Because it tested my family. And the things that were said that were so untrue, all of that about Thanksgiving.
2: You were accused of gathering with people outside your household because you went to a beach house with them.
4: There was no one outside of my household. I have one household. We happen to live between two houses because I had to protect them from me when I was out on the road. When I came back, I quarantined. Um, But if I had an emergency at that house, I wore a mask the whole time because I had to protect that household at all costs. I have a 92-year-old mother and a 96-year-old father and a a daughter that's 38 weeks pregnant. And so the implication that I wouldn't follow CDC guidance, I followed CDC guidance, and that's what protected me. I mean, I was on the road for six and a half months. I was in the White House during the hot, one of the hottest Mm -hmm. hot spots of viral transmission. And I remained negative because I followed the CDC guidelines. That's why I know they work. And that's why I take it very seriously. Well, this summer, uh, you gave an interview. What we're seeing today is different from March and April. It is extraordinarily widespread. And then President Trump tweeted.
2: He blasted you for saying that. Did you ever speak to him after that?
4: I hadn't seen him for months before that or months after that. but that was like that We're was the a,
2: coordinator of the COVID
4: task. That course. was an extraordinary moment because I also got yelled at by um, the speaker, who I have tremendous. I mean, obviously, women speaker have Pelosi. gone through a lot to get in their positions. I have a tremendous respect for women and women leadership. But
2: speaker Pelosi said she didn't have confidence in you because
5: you were working for President Trump. So I don't have confidence uh, in anyone who stands there while the president says, uh, swallow Lysol and it's going to cure your mm. virus. You know, it'll kill you and you won't have the virus anymore.
4: And so that was very hard because I've known her from the HIV world. And I have tremendous respect for what she brought early on. So. In my mind, she's a political hero for what she has done in HIV, which, you know, I've spent a lifetime on, along so with that TB. Oh, that was hard. But she's not the only one. I think she gave voice to what a lot of people were thinking, um, of how could you—I think they looked at going into the White House as somehow supporting a political party or a political individual. There are technical people that are brought in for their technical expertise. But
2: you often were perceived as explaining some of the things President Trump said, rather than correcting him.
4: Well, when people ask me a question, I feel like I have to respond with what my perception of that moment was.
2: When we come back, Dr. Bergs talks about masks, or the lack thereof, in the White House.
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: We want to pick back up with Dr. Burks talking about the moment last spring when she and the task force realized they had a serious problem.
4: Everyone knew that. Um, everyone knew that um, from, I would say, March, March 8th on. Because you only had to look at the slopes of the curves in these major metropolitan cities to understand what was happening and understanding, if you're seeing that rate of hospitalization, how much community spread there was.
2: But you were trying to get Americans just to wear masks, and the president himself was undermining you. He wasn't wearing one. Is there ever a way to make that scenario work?
4: (laughs) Well, you have to, because that's the president. So you have to figure out how to get that message out when you can't get it out from the head of the country. And that's our job. You don't give up. You can't ever, in any moment when American lives are at stake, say, well, this is just too hard. I'm giving up. But where's the vice president in all of this? The vice president knew what I was doing.
2: You mean he knew that you were telling the governors privately to do things that the president publicly was making light of when he was saying you don't really need to wear a mask or pushing to reopen the economy faster than your guidelines would allow. Mike Pence knew that. He knew what I was doing. And he supported it? Because
4: I don't—I'm not a person who would go out on their own and not do, you know, I wouldn't go— Why
2: would you have to be sneaking around? You're the head of the COVID task force
4: and tens of thousands of Americans are dying. Why is that a covert operation? Because if this isn't working and you're not going to get that to work, you have to find another solution.
2: Leaving it up to the states, is that the way it should be in a pandemic, is the fundamental question. Yes. Tell me about some of the resistance from governors, because you're going out there and you're telling them to wear a mask, to limit indoor dining. and. For some of these Republican governors, that would mean going against the head of their party to do what you're telling them to do.
4: You know, I don't know if that was as much as the dynamic as they were dealing with Republican legislatures and legislators. You needed every single level of government then to work together to ensure that, again, we're talking about behavioral change of American citizens. How much responsibility lies on the shoulders of the governors running these states? A lot. A lot. We have to be consistent. Sturgis was not okay. Birthday parties, not okay. Um, Bringing together family members indoors, maskless. None of this—we have to be very clear to the community. And, yes, we're going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We're human. If you made a mistake, if you had a gathering, at least get tested, wear a mask around those vulnerable. Assume you got exposed and are infected, and wear a mask around those vulnerable. But how did the task force allow the president,
2: who calls himself a germaphobe, to get COVID himself? How did that happen?
4: There were only two people who regularly wore a mask in the White House, myself and Tyler M. McGuffrey, the support person that I had from HHS.
2: So the staff around the president was not wearing a mask. He's the commander-in-chief. This is a national security risk.
4: How is that possible? I think people believed um, wrongly that testing, testing would be adequate. How is that possible? I think they believed that testing is a surrogate for a public health intervention.
2: But did you say the president of the United States needs to wear a mask? Did you press Mike Pence on that? Did you press Mark Meadows as chief of staff?
4: There are multiple communications about masking. Remember when I was talking about the stream of data coming in? They were mixing data that didn't have anything to do with the relevance of masking as a public health measure to changing into masking as a personal protective measure.
2: But did you ever say, you're misunderstanding this, you need to wear a mask, these are close quarters, and you're way too close to the president of the United States? You're nodding yes. You had that <laughs> argument.
4: Not with the president. I mean, I, I didn't have that kind of access, um, but to certainly people around the president, yes.
2: And they just didn't take it seriously?
4: I just want to make it clear, people were concerned about the president and wanted to protect the president. They believed that testing would be a reasonable substitution for people masking.
2: How sick did the president actually get? I don't know. I don't know. Did anyone ever say this is a national security risk and we need to nail down who brought this in and who infected the commander-in-chief?
4: I never heard those conversations.
2: There was no serious contact tracing that happened after the fact?
4: I don't know if there was contact tracing or not. What was your biggest mistake? I always feel like I could have done more, been more outspoken. Uh, maybe been more outspoken publicly. I didn't know all the consequences of all of these issues. When you're put into a new situation and you only know one person in the White House, you know, and you don't understand the culture of the White House, it's very difficult to get your footing. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying I didn't know how far I could push the envelope. You wish you pushed harder? Yes.
2: We spent nearly 90 minutes talking to Dr. Burks. We'd been tested and we were seated 10 feet apart in a well-ventilated facility. An extended version is available through our digital network and in a special edition of our new podcast, Facing Forward. We wanna check in with senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer
5: in London. Good morning. Here's a sobering statistic, although the number of infections is at last coming down here, England now has the worst per capita coronavirus death rate in the world. Gravediggers in north London were hard at work this week, making more room. Hospitals are full of people sick with the so-called UK mutation, which new data suggests does kill more people. Stark public warnings, like this one, reinforce the national lockdown.
1: Look them in the eyes and tell them you're doing all you can to stop the spread of COVID-19.
5: But there's good news here, too. Britain's vaccine rollout is the third fastest in the world, about to hit the six million mark. Europe, by contrast, is having a rough time. Vaccinations there got off to a slow start, and now supplies are running low thanks to manufacturing problems. So lockdowns in some places are getting stricter. The Netherlands has imposed a curfew for the first time since the Second World War, though dog walkers are exempt. The fastest vaccine rollout is in Israel. It started with the elderly, but now even teenagers are getting their COVID shots. And finally, there was huge international relief this week when the U.S. rejoined the World Health Organization, where it will add real muscle to the efforts to get vaccine to the developing world. Margaret?
2: We'll be talking to Dr. Scott Gottlieb later today. You can see it on our website or listen through our Facing Forward podcast. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Chief Medical Advisor to the President, Dr. Anthony Fauci and former White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelly Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN.